welcome to Ruby Ray, real and raw conversations for the rising global woman. I am your host, Jacqueline Norton. Hello, welcome back to a new season of the Ruby Ray podcast. I'm your host, Jacqueline Norton. And if there's one thing that I've really learned over the course of this year and especially the past six months, it is how cyclical we are as human beings. And when I first started this podcast, I wasn't intending on moving with seasons, but I've decided to do so because as I've learned more about the seasons of nature and specifically studying and attuning myself to the Celtic wheel of the year, it's brought so much meaning and depth and deeper connection into my life that it just doesn't feel right to not move in this way, to not follow these natural rhythms and cycles, not of the Gregorian calendar, but of the ancient calendar and the way that these different seasons and cycles were always celebrated and acknowledged and honored. And I find that doing this brings so much more meaning into our lives because we can connect with the different gifts that each season has to bring. And so I'm really excited to be bringing this new season forward on this Venus and Moon conjunction, which is the subject of today's conversation and why this matters. And so moving forward, I'll be moving more with the cycles of Venus and the Moon and the the seasons rather than the traditional Gregorian calendar. And so today's topic is Venus and the Celestial Rose. And I am interviewing Annabelle Duboulet. Annabelle is a spiritual teacher, the author of The Serpent's Tale. She's a speaker and transpersonal therapist, a scholar of the Avalon Rose lineage, and founder of the Avalon Rose Chapel in Glastonbury. So she is an expert on all things concerning the Avalon Rose, Celtic, and Gnostic lineages, and a Rose lineage expert. So she's the perfect person to talk to about Venus and the Celestial Rose and the Venusian lunar cycle, and why this matters to us and how this can help us in our personal growth and transformation, and especially why it matters so much now. And so this conversation today is filled with knowledge and wisdom and just fascinating conversation. And we discuss the Venusian lunar cycle and its connection to the rose lineage, the mythos of the rose in Celtic druidic lineages. We talk about the archetypal stages of the moon, the five-point star of Venus, star of wisdom, or star of Inanna, and why it's one of the most important mythological symbols as it pertains to the Venus-Rose lineage, the sacred marriage archetypal journey in the Gnostic myth. We also discuss the Rose lineage mythos from ancient Sumeria in the archetypal journey of the Venus lunar cycle, and striking a balance between knowledge and gnosis, and sacred pilgrimages, and how to activate planetary grid lines. 
I'm really honored to have Annabelle here and share this information with you all. And once again, thank you so much for being here. And here is to this new Venus cycle that we're in, this new season, and everything that is blooming and brewing and stirring in all of our lives. So here's Annabelle. Welcome, Annabelle, to the show. Wonderful to be connecting with you today and to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really honored to be here. I'm super excited about what we're talking about today. So I think it's best to just dive right in. So today we're talking about Venus and the celestial rose. So the connection between Venus and the rose lineage and then the astrological component to it and how this how this relationship works and also how we can feel it in our own lives and work with it. And so I'm curious just to get going, how did you first find out about the rose lineage and the connection between Venus and the moon? How did this find you in your own life? So I was initiated onto the path of the rose back when I was 19, when I was living in southern Italy. And I became fascinated by the kind of quasi-Catholic pagan interplay in southern Italy, and especially in relation to the worship of the Black Madonna, who was that later embodiment of the original earth mother goddess, black goddess from Africa, who is really the origin of the divine feminine energy in the rose lineage. So that was my initiation onto the rose path through the Black Madonna and then through Sophia, the black goddess of wisdom. And as I journeyed with her, I was on pilgrimage many, many years ago and I was in a deep meditation. I was on Mount Sinai, which for me is the cradle of the rose. Mount Sin is actually mountain of the goddess. And it's one of my, yeah, most profound souls home, really. And I was up at the top of Mount Sinai sleeping or trying to sleep because it was freezing cold. My Bedouin guides. And I just received this incredibly clear message, which was the secret is in the rose. And at the time, I didn't really understand the full significance of that. And then it became like a quest for me, really, to fully understand what this secret was. And then as it always happens, lots of synchronicities then began to occur. And my guides began to lead me to certain books and certain teachers. And until there was one week where I hid myself away in a cottage in the mountains in Wales with sort of half my esoteric library with me. And there was no internet and I was just, I just sort of entered this other dimension for a week, really, where I was, you know, doing a lot of left brain research, but then also receiving a lot of right brain downloads, guidance. That's where my work kind of from the kind of two decades beforehand really kind of crystallized. That's when Venus became such an important part of my work. She, I mean, really mythos begins with the lunar mythos. And so that is the origin of our most ancient myth of the descent and ascent of the soul. 
is when our ancestors in the Paleolithic era began to realize that the moon, you know, waxed, became full and then waned. And that's where we get this concept of the Trinity, the triple goddess from. Then in the Neolithic era, this then becomes the four stages. So that's when we start to get the symbol of the original swastika, which was actually the rotation of, of, you know, the four seasons or the four aspects of the moon. And that's when they became aware of this three-day no moon, or what some people would call the new moon, i.e. those three days of the invisible. And that became that aspect archetypally of the black goddess. So that energy that holds that dark moon. Mm. You have that crystallized point of death and rebirth happening within the void. And that is the essence of the black goddess, especially later embodied in the, in the Gnostic goddess Sophia. She is that goddess who holds that energy of darkness and light that cannot be made separate. So I then began to work very deeply with the lunar myth, with this aspect of the dark goddess. Then what we then see like mythologically is we then come to the cultures of ancient Sumeria and then later ancient Babylonia. And they are the ones who first write down the inspiration from their tracking of the planet of Venus. They moved on from not just tracking the moon to tracking the planet Venus. They are known as the cradle of civilization because they were the first culture, ancient Sumeria, to develop a form of writing. And in fact, the first known world authors, Enhedwana, was high priestess of Banana. The myths and stories that they wrote down were deeply inspired by the movement of the planet Venus. So the myth of the descent and ascent of Inanna is completely founded on the movement of the planet Venus. But what I find really fascinating because I live in Glastonbury and so much of my work is centered around the Isle of Avalon, is that if you actually look into the archeology span of the British Isles, then our ancestors were aligning their burial chambers or what were thought to be burial chambers to the heliacal rising of Venus and Sirius, thousands of years, well, a couple of thousands of years before ancient Sumeria. So you can actually see in the archeology span that the ancestors in that megalithic period, Neolithic period, were, must have been tracking the cycles of Venus and Sirius. And they had realized that they aligned at certain points within her eight-year cycle with the winter solstice. So Newgrange, for example, which is a tomb in Ireland, is not just aligned to the winter solstice. It's aligned to the heliacal rising of Venus. So at that point, they were not only celebrating the return of the sun king, the sun god, the solar god, but they were also celebrating the resurrection of Venus, who was the embodiment of the divine feminine. So then you have that sacred marriage of the solar god and the Venusian queen. You can then track that reverence for both Venus, Sirius, the sun, the moon, and the way 
that not only monuments are aligned to them, but then the mythos that is then created. And you can track that then all the way down the millennia. And that's what I call the Rose lineage. And with specific reference to Glastonbury, I then call it the Avalon Rose lineage, because you can see the influence of the cycle of Venus and her influence on the mythos and the archetypes literally tracking all the way down. So in my Avalon Rose Priestess training, one of the courses literally tracks this mythos from ancient Sumeria, ancient Mesopotamia, to ancient Judaism, to ancient Egypt, to the ancient Greco-Romano pantheon, and then to the early Christian Gnostics, who then brought these teachings and this mythos inspired by Venus back to Glastonbury, where it united with the Celtic Druidic teachings but of course both of them actually at their origin source share the same what I call tree of life they share that same origin of our ancestral neolithic worship of Venus and Sirius and the solar and lunar uh, cycles wow that's so fascinating so you said that there's the archetypal energies for each, is it for each stage of the moon? So if it's the meeting point between the end of the full moon cycle into the new moon and you're in that dark, what is it, the dark goddess or the dark mother? Yes, I mean, I, I call her the black goddess and that's how she's always been known. Some people will refer to her as the dark goddess or the dark mother, but it's that, it's the void, it's that... Yes archetypal energy where darkness and light cannot be separated where death and birth happen in that origin point right right and then so moving along into the new moon cycle then so are there archetypes for each stage of the moon Yes. So with the lunar cycle, typically that's where we get the original idea of the triple goddess. So the crescent moon is the maiden, the full moon is the mother, the waning moon is the crone. And then we get this fourth stage of the wisdom goddess of that point where darkness and light, where death and rebirth um, are held together within the void. And that's the place where we enter the mysteries So that is typically archetypally related to like our plutonic journeys, you know, of journeying into the depths of the underworld and then through that uh, being reborn into a new spiral of our life with greater ability to experience love and compassion or strength or courage. And of course, we are, we continue on that spiral of life of the descent and the ascent and the rebirth throughout our lives. What is the reason for that it's called when the when Venus creates that five-point star in the center of the rose? Why is that called the Star of Wisdom? So it's a pentagram. It was known as also the Star of Anana, and it's, of course, the Star of Venus. It is one of the most important symbols that unites the lineages of the Rose and the Celtic Druidic on Avalon, on the Isle of Avalon. So Avalon is the Isle of Aflon, the Isle of Apples. And if you cut an apple sideways, you find a pentagram. And so mythologically and symbolically, 
The apple has always been the symbol of the fruit of wisdom. So something I work with very deeply on my priestess training, the first workshop we work with Eve as the initiatrix. And she offers us a bite from the fruit of wisdom. And that is initiation onto this earth walk, this journey. And it's through what's known as the fool, the archetypal fool. And obviously you see that in the patriarchal manipulation of that, of the, the fool from the Garden of Eden. But what it is, we look at the Gnostic myth of Sophia, is it, it is the fall from what we call the pleroma, what some people will call heaven, others might call the interlife, where your soul dwells before it incarnates. It's the fall from that state of, of complete union with source and with your soul. As you incarnate into your earth walk, then, of course, our soul's journey is this spiraling of descent and ascent when we are given the opportunity to survive challenges, to evolve really on a deeply soul, spiritual level until we return to the Garden of Eden, the Pleroma, and come back into wholeness, into that inner sacred marriage. And so that plays out in this Gnostic myth of Sophia when she returns to her brother, who's also her bridegroom, Christ. And so he remains in the Pleroma. She is that part of us symbolically who descends to earth. Then through her soul's journey of suffering and healing, she then returns to him and to her soul and to the Garden of Eden. And it's through that sacred marriage that, of course, is the internal sacred marriage within our own psyche that they then are able to give birth once more to the divine magical child self, who is the core of our essence, the core of our being. And so that is, that's the archetypal journey that we see in that later Gnostic myth that is fundamentally inspired by the original cycles of Venus. Wow. So when you talk about how the pentagram is that union, that merge between the Avalon, the Druidic lineage, the Celtic Druidic lineage, and then the Rose lineage. So how is the Celtic Druidic lineage flavoring the original essence of the Rose lineage or of the Venus lineage from way back in the ancient texts? So both lineages have their source in the Neolithic and Megalithic cultures in Great Britain, what were the British Isles and Northern Europe. So because we know that astronomers at the time, or Magi, were tracking the cycles of Venus, and that what were later known as burial mounds were actually, we think, initiation, resurrection chambers aligned to the heliacal rising of Sirius and Venus and the winter solstice, the resurrection of the sun god. This, They then were aware of this pentagram. So when they found it also in the apple, that is why the apple mythologically then becomes the symbol of the fruit of wisdom, because the wisdom is to be found in the cycle of Venus and in the mythological descent and ascent of the soul. So that pentagram is symbolizing. And because both lineages have the same root, they then come back together here 
on the Isle of Avalon in an incredibly powerful way. Yeah. Wow. And so since this journey of descent and ascent is archetypal story of the inner union, the divine marriage, the perfect harmony between the masculine and feminine, and being that we're living in 2022, which is coded with the energies of divine union, inner marriage, that perfect harmony between masculine and feminine, creating the the third expression. So that creates a very powerful moment in time that we're living in, especially numerologically with being 2022, but then adding into this, the Venus cycle and the moon cycle. Mm -hmm. So how do all these energies coalesce together to this moment that we're in now? So this is like you've just expressed an incredibly powerful moment. I mean, to, to be in 2022, obviously, is, is the Magdalene number. Her feast day is the 22nd. My father's birthday is her feast day. And my birthday is the 22nd of November. So we're completely encoded as a family with Magdalene. I really feel that like this Venus cycle especially has been really leading up to this year and obviously we've just had the rebirth of venus as the morning star in this new 19 month synodic period just starting in early january it was an incredibly powerful venus retrograde which has you know literally sort of just came to an end on the 29th of jan on the same day that we actually stepped through that first gate of descent because sometimes the Venus cycle is quite complicated to track, but sometimes she has invisible gates and then she has visible gates, which are based on the conjunctions with the moon. And sometimes the first conjunction after the retrograde, uh, when she goes direct, is an invisible one. So we're still waiting to begin our descent. But this year or this cycle, synodic period, we did step through astronomically that first gate of descent the day that she went direct. So it was incredibly powerful. And then through that previous Venus retrograde period, we had the conjunctions with Pluto. And then we're coming up to these very powerful conjunction with Mars. So Pluto, of course, is a lord of the underworld. He's the planet of transformation, deep, deep Plutonic journeys. You know, there is always something deeply karmic that comes up when Pluto is involved. I really felt, and this is what I was guiding everyone in who's within my Rosemoon membership, through this journey of working with the mythos of Persephone and Pluto. And what's really interesting is if you look at the origin myths of the myth of Persephone, She's not kidnapped by Pluto or Hades. She goes willingly into the underworld and they are, you know, joined in sacred union and they rule as king and queen of the underworld from the place of the sacred marriage. So this is incredibly important. You know, she is not the victim. She chooses willingly. And this is the point where Eve gives us the apple and where we willingly take the bite. And that, of course, is the moment when Sleeping Beauty, for example, pricks her finger on the spinning wheel of life. It is the moment when we experience some wounding that is going to become the initiation onto our soul's path. 
And typically that will happen in childhood and typically that origin wounds will be repeatedly triggered through our life until we heal it. Sometimes we may never, it may be the unhealed wound of the wounded healer, the wound Mm -hmm. that is never healed because that is the source of our wisdom. It's the source of, of our ability to heal others, to empower them in their own healing process um, uh, with that very kind of Chiron wounded healer energy. Right. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's so fascinating. I had no idea that she willingly went because the whole story is completely opposite of that. She gets tugged away from her mom and, you know, okay. Well, that's interesting. So we are currently where Venus is, is she's just left or she's in the crown, right? She's on her, she's on her journey of descent. So she came up from retrograde Mm -hmm. and then, and then now she's traveling through the different energy centers of the body on her journey of descent. And so archetypically and mythologically, where are we at right now? What is the the story here of what Venus within the Venus mythos, but also how we could maybe feel that within our own life? Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is a major part of my work in which I guide people on through my Rosemoon membership. So I work specifically with the Rosemoon mythos from ancient Sumeria. So I work with the myth of the, of the descent and ascent of Inanna, who was then later Ishtar in Babylon. What we can do, so she has seven waning moon conjunctions. Then she typically has three, sometimes four lunations in the underworld and then she has seven waxing moon conjunctions so this is the archetypal descent of the seven gates down through the seven waning moon conjunctions the period of the trinity the three months within the underworld and of course this is where we get this concept of the three days between christ's death and resurrection for example which of course is based on the original lunar mythos where the moon disappears for three days. And so we get this trinity of the three months, the three lunations, not the three days when Venus disappears into the underworld. So we get this repeated idea of of that three day or three month disappearance before the rebirth and the resurrection. And then she starts to ascend back up those seven gates and this with the seven waxy moon conjunctions until she arrives back in what I call the Rose Garden of Eden. And it's there that she has this archetypal 40-day, typically, retrograde period, which, of course, all later concepts of the 40 days in the wilderness are based on and inspired by. So that, for me, like some astrologers, for example, say that she's in her underworld phase when she's retrograde. Because, you know, they're kind of looking at it more from an astrological point of view, whereas I'm a mythologist, so I look at it from a mythological and I'm a transpersonal therapist, so I look at it from an archetypal point of view as well. That, for me, is when she is coming home to herself within her own sacred marriage. That is when she has her 40 days in the wilderness on her own, when she is coming fully back into her own power, She is returning through her own inner sacred marriage to that origin, Garden of Eden, where she is reunited 
and gives birth to once more her divine magical child self, to her essence. That is the return, of course, as we begin the next synodic period with the heliacal rising of Venus, she begins the whole journey again. So what this gives us is this incredible opportunity every 19 months to go on this archetypal journey with our own psyche. And so we can relate those seven gates to the seven chakras. And at each of the gates in the myth of the descent of Anna, Inanna, she is asked to release something that she is either wearing or carrying that symbolizes on the descent an internalized shadow belief behavior that is no longer serving her, that is limiting her. And it's more like an unveiling, really, of our pure soul essence that has become camouflaged and hidden over time with internalized shadow thoughts and behaviors and feelings. And so each time on the descent, we have the opportunity to really unveil our true essence at an even deeper level, to come even more powerfully into our authenticity, into our integrity, at one with our soul and our soul's purpose. At that point where we arrive in the underworld, where Inanna meets with her shadow sister, Ereshkigal, who is queen of the underworld, we then have that three-month lunation that can energetically feel quite challenging. We arrive in the underworld naked, stripped of all pretense, vulnerable, but actually within our vulnerability is our deepest power. So we actually, although we arrive stripped and naked and vulnerable, we are actually at our most powerful at that point. And then after our sojourn with Ereshkigal and with our own shadow self in the underworld, Venus is then reborn as the evening star and we begin our ascent back up those seven gates. And so then we have the opportunity at each gate to reclaim, to put back on or take back those garments, those items that then symbolize what it is that we want to bring into our life, what it is we want to embody. Like what are our soul gifts? What are we radiating? What is the light that we want to shine in the world? And we come back to that place from a much more empowered embodiment, an authentic embodiment of who we are and what we're here to do. And then, of course, as we take back our crown in that last gate of ascent and return to the Rose Garden of Eden, we have that incredible moment of really crowning ourselves as queen or king and taking back our full power, asking ourselves, you know, what are we bringing through now in this spiral of our lives? So, yeah, so it, I just find it the most incredible way to work really deeply with our souls and psyche, but guided always by these incredible beings, you know, Venus and Anna Ishtar, Grandmother Moon, and then all our guides and ancestors that we work with each time. And I mean, I track it specifically in relation to all the other astrological things that are going on. So then we'll work with those aspects in, in, in our guided journeys, I will always weave those energetic aspects into each gate. So each synodic period is specific to that year, well, to that 19-month period, to the specific astrology that's happening at, at that time. 
So given that we have this Venus-Mars conjunction coming up, when is it? March? Beginning of March? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So what, why is that so significant to us now? Because that is the archetypal sacred marriage. So you've got the goddess of love who is the ultimate embodiment of the divine feminine. And then you've got Mars, you know, god of war, who is the ultimate expression of the warrior. And you've got them coming together in conjunction, coming together. So this is the this is the archetypal sacred marriage, really, of the queen and king. So it is in, it's going to be an incredibly powerful um, conjunction and journey with them and with their mythos. And it's about the sacred marriage within our own psyche, how those different aspects of us relate to each other. Are they in balance? Especially uh, relating them to our left and right brain and aspects of our psyche but then also it's going to really focus our attention and energies on how we relate externally to the other, especially looking at issues around power dynamics, balance, union, polarity. So it's going to be, yeah, a very, very powerful time. And so how can we really work with these energies in a practical way? Because sometimes when when we're living in these extremely high energy moments in in portals of time. And then we've reached these certain points in conjunctions or dates of significance. How do we work with the energies so that we can really use them for our own growth and embrace the gifts that they bring, but also not getting so caught up in it where you're like overthinking it and you're not Mm -hmm. actually receiving the true gem that's here in the moment. Yeah, I really hear you. And I think I think this is the important thing about striking the balance between knowledge and gnosis. You know, our left brain is always really keen to learn and to understand and to have a conscious awareness of something. So that's the part of us that will want to read about what's going on astrologically so it can understand and it can predict what might happen. But for me, by far the most important thing is the surrender to the life experience, to the gnosis, without consciously trying to understand or manipulate it. So if we just surrender and allow life to happen, my experience is the energies lead you on the journey without you even consciously having to know what's going to happen. And often I will do that. I will deliberately not read up about something I will just allow the experiences to happen and then what I will often do is read up after and they go ah okay that's why that happened or because I really love the the purity of the gnosis of the experience because our you know the deities and the guides and our soul will take us where we need to go they will bring the experiences to us they will guide us through whatever soul healing or transformation or empowerment that we need to have. When you look back, I would say, you know, every time I can then see the astrological alignment or the Venusian alignment or the Syrian alignment that has underpinned that experience without fail. 
I mean, I'm, I'm a complete 100% believer. <laughs> and, and something that's always happened with me and still does is like with my moon cycle constantly changes so that I bleed on specific days. So for example, in the winter solstice portal, my moon came early so that I started to bleed on the winter solstice on the 21st. And I only bled for that portal between the 21st and Christmas day when the sun came it's reborn after that three-day portal of the solstice, of the solstere, of, of standing still, when the sun stands still. And so that, for me, was my soul, my body's way of creating some incredibly powerful moon blood that had the specific energies of resurrection, which I could then use. I could then, I then took it with me on pilgrimage to Scotland and offered it to the yew trees at Roslyn Chapel because I work very deeply with the Grail and with the connection, the rose line between Roslyn Chapel and, and Glastonbury and the Avalon Rose Chapel. So that's another thing that I think is really important is tracking, uh, if you bleed, your moon cycles in relation to all these other cycles. And you will probably begin to see how they might shift and move Definitely, I can track how many times my moon has shifted in order to arrive on one of the Venus moon conjunctions, for example, or other incredibly powerful dates in the Gnostic calendar like Mary Magdalene's feast day or like uh, the 15th of August, the Black Goddess, right? So it's, yeah, it's, I think the more, the more in tune you become with the cycles, the more your own cycles begin to weave with them. Wow. So it's like we are really living and walking the mystery through and through the full embodiment down to the rhythm of our cycles. Yeah, absolutely. And I think definitely my experience is the more you work with these cycles, the more in tune your own body becomes with them. And I, I think that's because our guides and the deities want us to use our blood in this way. It's one of the most powerful ways in which we can and activate grid lines really is through the offering of our blood. And if you don't bleed anymore or you don't have a womb, then you can use pomegranate juice, for example, which carries very similar uh, symbolic energies of fertility and resurrection. So is that why like to eat pomegranate seeds around these conjunctions? Is it in recognition of the myth? Is it, what does that symbolize? So the pomegranate is, you know, the oldest fruit of initiation, of course. It's, it's what Pluto or Hades gives to Persephone to eat so that she stays, you know, in the underworld. It is a fruit that was um, used ritually to symbolize fertility and resurrection and sexuality and sensuality. So it's Apart from the apple, for me, it's probably the most powerful fruit there is mythologically. And so it's a, and because of its blood red color, it's such a beautiful juice to use in lieu of menstrual blood if you, if you don't bleed and to use it, you know, to offer to the earth instead. And so I'd love to, I'm curious about the connection between the Roslyn Chapel and Avalon. So Roslyn Chapel is the most incredible place just outside Edinburgh and it was built by the Knights Templar and that is my bloodline. So my bloodline is Scottish Jewish Masonic Templar. So I have 
um, a very deep, deep affinity with Roslyn. It is connected directly to Glastonbury Tor through the Rose Line. So the Rose Line is one of the dragon lines that literally goes directly from Roslyn Chapel to Glastonbury Tor. And then one of our other primary ley lines or dragon lines in the British Isles is the Michael Mary ley line. And they are two ley lines, one, the Mary embodying the feminine energy of Michael, the masculine energy, and they weave their way right across from Norfolk down through to Cornwall. And at certain points, they cross like this. And at these energy points, they create, obviously, the energetic sacred marriage. So I have lived on the Michael Mary ley lines my entire life. And they cross on the tour, on Glastonbury tour. And then they also cross at Borough Mump, which is just, just down the road from the Avalon Rose Chapel. And so the Michael ley line, actually, I'm literally sitting on it now. So it runs straight through the front of the Avalon Rose Chapel on its way from Glastonbury tour to Borough Mump. So I work very deeply on my own on private pilgrimage with these earth grids, um, using my moon blood, using sacred waters. I work a lot with the yew tree, grandmother yew, to activate these earth grids, especially between Glastonbury, Borough Mump, Dundon Hill, which is another ancient site here, and Roslyn and the Hebrides. And the Hebrides are Bride's Isles, the, Holy, the Isles of the Holy Bride. So both Bridget, who's the Rose Celtic goddess, Bridey Bride, but also Magdalena as the Holy Bride is deeply connected to the Hebrides. So Iona and Mal, I work very deeply there as well. And then in Southern Italy and Sicily. So that's the main connection between Glastonbury and, and Roslyn. Wow. And so is when you're working with acti- activating these lines, which I know is a really big theme for us on Earth right now, where there are these certain sites that are, you know, extremely potent, like what you were saying, and and to activate them, are you working mostly with offerings or with meditations or does it take its own form? Yeah, so I always do like a pre-pilgrimage pilgrimage. So wherever I'm setting off from, which is usually Avalon, Glastonbury, I'll do a pre-pilgrimage where I tend to go on a circular route around working with all the sacred waters here and with the yew trees here. And I will offer my moon blood and say prayers and go into deep meditations at all these points. And as I'm going... I will then gather the sacred waters and the earth, um, maybe some flowers, um, and then definitely asking permission from grandmother you to take cuttings from her. So that that begins the grid and begins, you know, that's the grounding and the anchoring really of the pilgrimage. Um, and then I will travel to wherever I'm going to and I will carry those offerings with me and make those offerings with deep, deep prayers I work a lot with the sacred marriage rite as well on my own energetically because that is one of the most powerful ways to activate the land is through that inner sacred marriage. And then I will gather cuttings and offerings from that location where I'm on on pilgrimage and carry them back so that when I come back, I will then make another final completion pilgrimage where I will bring back, for example, cuttings from the yew tree there and give it to the yew trees here so that I'm creating that energetic link. 
and obviously offering my moon blood and the sacred waters at every site, bringing the sacred waters back from there to here. The power of prayer is just not to be underestimated. It is so powerful. And if you open to working with the light beings and whatever deities or beings, archangels want to come and work with you, then you become a conduit. You can become, you know, you become a vessel for them to work through you, really. And so that's where I feel, although obviously a lot of my soul's purpose is to share these teachings and to help other people to heal and become empowered and, you know, to act as a guide upon their own, on their own path. By far the most important work I feel I do as a soul is on my private pilgrimages. It's this deep energetic work that I do with spirit, in in union with spirit, and just as a vessel um, in sacred service in whatever way they need to work through me. Yeah, I really feel that. And I know, you know, for me as well, when I, when I feel the call, it's so, it can feel so overwhelming, like so powerful. And that's a really good reminder of why it is so powerful and why it is so necessary and so needed right now. And to not take those urges or those calls lightly when you feel them with all of your being, because they really mean something and they mean something, not just for ourselves, but for Gaia herself, you know, for Earth and and what she needs of us right now, how we can give to her to support her. So, yeah, thank you for for sharing that. And I'd like to wrap up just by hearing a little bit about your take on the where we are now with Venus as a morning star and how archetypally or mythologically we can connect with these energies and use them in our life right now. Okay, so where we are specifically now, as as we were talking about earlier, is we've just stepped through that first gate of descent working with the crown chakra. So we've given our crown. And by doing that, we have uh, consciously released something in relation to our crown chakra that has been blocking our full relationship to source and our soul. So for this next couple of weeks until we step through the next gate of descent, we really need to be focusing on that relationship to source and to our soul. And we can do this in, in, you know, we can use a lot of practical ways to work with our crown chakra. You know, there are all the wonderful like Indian head massages and all the oils and the crystals that are related to the crown chakra. But then also just really, I think it's one, one of the, the main gates to really meditate, uh, you know, to really open to source, to our guides, to our soul, especially at this time. And especially, I think, at this beginning point of this Magdalene coded year, it's like, you know, what is my soul's purpose at that at this point in my life? Because it shifts and it changes and transforms as we do. But what if we are here as conscious souls in this Magdalene coded year, at this time of the deconstruction of the patriarchy and the old world order, we are here for a very, very important reason, each of us. And no one else's soul's purpose is more important than anyone else's. You know, we are each here for a very, very important purpose. And I think this specifically nation is a really, really powerful portal through which 
we can, you know, investigate that through self-inquiry and through connecting with our soul and source. And the best way to do that, I do it every day just by walking my wolfhound in Mother Nature. And, you know, that's where I can really listen to my guides and to source and to my soul, you know, on the whispers of the wind. And just feeling that earth rising up, just creating that space on a, on a daily level in our lives to just listen and receive and connect. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing all of your amazing wisdom and knowledge and insights and really helping us connect back with this, what feels like the original template of, of who we are and the journey that we're walking in this time together you're so welcome thank you so much for inviting me it's been a real honor and privilege to share i've loved every minute of it this is just so fascinating and resonant to me and for anyone else who's listening to this and just so curious and wanting to learn more are there any starting points or resources that you think are really good kind of cornerstones foundations for educating further on this there are a hot i mean such a wealth of books out there because i've literally been studying this for 30 years now so i would probably say like my all-time bible um on all of this would be the myth of the goddess by anne Baring and jules cashford it's it is an academic tune but i have been using it literally since i did my master's and phd in this you know, kind of 28 or however many years ago. And that is absolutely incredible. With Venus, I'm very, I'm very self-taught with Venus. That really is a matter of, of just beginning to track it yourself and work with her. I mean, every time I go through the 19-month synodic period, I just learn more and more through my direct experience and communion with her and the energies. So just feeling your way and finding maybe someone who can guide you through it or I guide everyone through it in my Rosemary membership but there are other teachers and facilitators out there who also have their own ways of tracking it and working with her so just you know opening to whatever guidance feels right you know for you as an individual or or just you know tracking it on your own tracking you know working with her beautiful and for anyone who would like to journey deeper with you how can they get in touch so my website is annabeldeboulay.com and all the information about my Rosemary membership, which is the monthly membership where we work with the Venus cycle is there. And then also my Avalon Rose Priestess training and practitioner training and my Avalon Rose Mary Michael pilgrimage applications are now open for those three programs on my website. Amazing. Beautiful. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure interviewing you today. And just thank you for your amazing, amazing, inspiring work in the world. Thank you so much, love. I'm really grateful. Deep blessings. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Ruby Ray. I am your host, Jacqueline Norton, and I'll see you next time.